You can keep up with all the episodes of the Journalism Salute by checking out our newsletter. The link is at the bottom of the show notes. Hope you'll subscribe. And let us know where you're listening from and what you think of the podcast. Email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Curtis Bunn. Curtis is based in Atlanta and writes about race for NBCBLK. He's been a journalist for more than 40 years. And among the highlights, he was a sports writer at the New York Daily News, Newsday, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He was a writer and deputy editor for black newspapers such as the Atlanta Black Star. Uh, He's from Washington, D.C. He also had a successful career as a novelist with 10 novels to his credit, as well as co-authoring Say Their Names, How Black Lives Came to Matter in America. And he's the founder and president of the National Book Club Conference, an event for African-American readers and authors that has been running for more than 20 years. That's quite a resume. Hi, Curtis. Hey, Mark. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm really uh, looking forward to this conversation. Uh, And we start where we start with everyone. Uh, What's your journalism origin story? Well, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C., as you mentioned. And as a young kid back then, almost everyone wanted to be an athlete a pro professional athlete. So I played all the sports, football, basketball, baseball, swimming, ran track, wasn't any good at track, not that good at baseball, but football and basketball, I flourished at, and particularly basketball. So that was always my number one plan. I was going to be in the NBA. Well, uh, my English teacher, Mr. Wendell Overton at Douglas Junior High School in Southeast DC once said to me, have you considered journalism because you write really good papers and I wasn't quite sure what journalism meant I knew what and I was 13 years old I knew what it meant but I didn't know what the what the job entailed and so he said that to me and I told him no I hadn't and kind of walked away and a few weeks later I had a class called consumer education we had to write a, a story about a career and the teacher told me Curtis you cannot write about sports and so I wasn't sure where to go my father Worked for the Federal Communications Commission in a job he didn't really care much for, but it provided for the family. My mother was an operator for what is now Verizon. Back then it was CMP Telephone Company. And so I wasn't sure what to do. And I remember what Mr. Overton said about journalism. So I went home to the encyclopedias, which some of these kids that I've talked to and taught in various places never seen an encyclopedia. They know about Wikipedia. And I looked in the, maybe the eighth or ninth paragraph and it said, some journalists make up to $500 a week. Well, at 13 years old, having not seen $500 in my lifetime at that point, we grew up in a, a, a modest way. I said, maybe I better pay attention to this journalism thing. And by the next year, I was in the ninth grade and started really reading up on it more and more reading at the time, the Washington Star and the Washington Post realizing that it was an opportunity to be close to sports, even if I didn't play him. And I went to high school, Blue High School in Southeast D.C. and worked for the school newspaper in the 10th grade. And I was editor of the paper in the 11th grade. In the 12th grade, I went to a career development center called the Penn Center in the morning of my senior year, my regular high school in the afternoon. And by then I was sold on what I wanted to do. I, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. It even surpassed my basketball aspirations. I just fell in love with it. And since then, I've been writing. Wow. 
And was there anything in your family or heritage that lends itself to storytelling? No, I'm the first one in my family, immediate family to go to college. My grandmother and, and parents would tell stories about their upbringing, but those are oral stories. No one was writing. It's just something that I was, I think, certainly I certainly worked hard and trained for it, but I certainly had an aptitude for it that Mr. Overton in the ninth, in the eighth grade recognized, and I was able to hone those skills and really, you know, continue to get better and better at it. Two episodes ago, I asked a, a journalist about going to an HBCU and how that shaped her, and she had a very detailed answer uh, mm -hmm. about how going to Howard did that. You went to an HBCU. Uh, how did that yeah. shape you as a journalist? Yeah, Norfolk State University. Not even quite sure how I had been learned about Norfolk State. I was considering some smaller colleges and other colleges in basketball for college. Pepperdine University was the biggest school that showed some interest, but it only had one scholarship left and they needed it for a big man and told me to come out there and enroll for 8000 a year or something like that, which was certainly outside of my parents' budget. And then I would get a scholarship the next year. Well, that didn't happen. And I think a counselor at Baloo told me about Norfolk State, went and visited Saw the school newspaper. Actually, I saw this young lady in these short jeans, shorts, and I said, wow, this is probably where I need to be. So that was a beautiful experience. And I got there. I worked for the Spartan Echo, our student newspaper, pretty much from my first week to my last. It shaped everything. We got tremendous training. We only came out every week because we didn't have the kind of technology we have today. But guys like Leon Carter, who's now an executive at ESPN, and Nathan McCall, who's an award-winning journalist and New York Times bestselling author, and many others who I worked under and worked with, helped shape Dirk Dingle, who's the editor of Black Enterprise Magazine. He and I came in together, went out together. We worked on the school papers, school newspaper side by side for four years. It was, it was enlightening, educational, inspirational, and led me to a career when I graduated where I had three job offers from newspapers and had to decide wh where I wanted to go. But it never would have happened if I hadn't gone to Norfolk State, grown up there, you know, went in as this kid trying to find myself and left as a young man ready to take on the world as a professional journalist. It all happened there. So it, did, it's, you, it's did you play any basketball there? I didn't. All my friends, I won MVP a couple of years and scoring title in intramural basketball. and. All my friends were like, why aren't you playing for the team? Why aren't you playing for the team? I really had an interest for a while, but it kind of faded. I enjoyed writing so much. I went to school also as a, as a relatively shy individual, but as a journalist, you can't be shy. When it's time to go up to someone in, that you don't know and interview them, you have to go up and do that. And so it helped me in that. It helped me blossom personally and professionally. So Basketball will always stay close to me, but as the years progressed, the more I wrote, the more I was so determined to get better at it. I loved it, and, uh, and basketball receded to the background. What did you learn from working at the Washington Times? Well, that was my first job in sports. My first job out of college was at the St. Petersburg Times as a news reporter. Okay. Um, I did that for six months and really was not happy with where I was living. It went there in the summer, right after graduation. It was, you know, close to 100 degrees every day. It was a town that wasn't that progressive. And so when I got a job at the Washington Times in sports, which is where I really wanted to be, 
it really helped hone my skills because I started off as a sports copy editor. So I was in there editing other people's work, writing headlines, learning the process of actually putting the paper together, working with a guy named Doug Lamborn who hired me and a guy named Dick Slay, who was a longtime veteran from the Washington Star and John Schultz, who was a great reporter and many others. And I learned a lot under them. And then I started writing, branching out a little bit. I went to cover Sugar Ray Leonard had retired from boxing. He had a detached retina. He was doing an exhibit at Andrews Air Force Base. And I asked, could I go? And he said, sure. And I went, and of course, he announced that he was coming back to fight. So it became my beat. And from there, I started writing. I'm a, I'm a Washington Commanders fan. Back then, of course, the Redskins, through and through. And I started covering some of the Washington games. And then I covered the University of Maryland with the great Lynn Bias and Adrian Branch. And it was, it, you know, I, it, it confirmed what I wanted to do as a sports writer. And early on in my career, I started seeing stuff that I would never have thought about the scene. I really kind of had conceptualize what it was to be a pro journalist in the beginning. But at the Washington Times, that really kind of helped everything unfold, writing on deadlines, traveling with teams, writing day-to-day, -day, writing follow-ups, writing features, writing game stories. Uh, it was quite an experience that really catapulted me to to everything else that happened. The, the way that I'm familiar with your work is from writing for the New York tabloids. You worked for both Newsday and the New York Daily News. You covered yeah. the Knicks during their best days, the mm -hmm. most fun sports for me, two years when the Knicks I had half a season ticket. They went to the finals one year. They lost in the conference finals the other year. You saw all that stuff up close. What did you get from working at the New York tabloids? Well, I got the kind of exposure that I'd never really anticipated. I got to see Michael Jordan 50 times, 60 times from the floor up close and personal. Uh, I got to see what it's like for an organization to uh, really crave for success and go through, you know, Huey Brown, and finally they brought in Pat Riley, and I saw the professionalism that he brought in. It changed the whole dynamic of the building. Rick Pitino before him was great. That was the first coach that I covered covering the Knicks. Rick was the only coach who invited me out to dinner. He was very professional, but he had a college mentality of really pressing, pressing, pressing the whole game, 82 games a year. In an NBA, that just isn't feasible, even though they had a great success, success, success that they hadn't had prior to him. When Pat Riley came in after Rick left and went to Kentucky, it was a different feel. The Garden was a place to be. The energy almost every night was, t was tangible. And that 94 season you're talking about going to the finals, when the New York Rangers also went to the finals that year, Every other night was one of those two teams playing for a couple of weeks. It was pretty phenomenal. So what was the what was the experience of trying to write about New York sports? It wasn't the golden age of the internet. It was the golden age of tabloids and holding the paper in your hand and reading on the train and picking them up in the bodegas. And so there were there was quite quite a lot of competition. When you look at the Post, the Daily News, Newsday, the New York Times, the Bergen Record the Westchester paper. So we're talking at least six papers that were covering this team day in and day out. So there was a level of pressure there. Um, one of the things I learned just through experiences and observing is that 
you have to build relationships within the organization in order to cover a team. It's one thing to cover the games and write about what happened, but it's also there's also so much more to it. Contracts, who's getting fired, who's going to get a new deal, who's getting traded. And building relationships with upper management and those people who work in the office was critical. And I was able to do that, and, and that lent me some success in getting stories that other, other newspapers may not have gotten. And certainly the relationships with the players also was pivotal. I, th I think this is one of the jobs, where, one of the few jobs in the country where being a young Black man was a benefit because the players and I were relatively close in age and we had the same interests. So I could have conversations with them about Eddie Murphy's latest movie or Anita Baker's latest song or a concert that was coming up that helped them look at me as a human being versus somebody who's always looking to get a story. Because they're told, you can believe they're told, watch these reporters, they're looking for a scoop, watch what you say to them. Well, if, and if you come to them every time, all you want to talk about is basketball and Pat Riley, how he's treating them, all these other things that sound salacious, then they're going to have their guard up. But if you build a rapport with them, talking about their families, talking about having showing that you have common interests, I would often see players at the Shark Bar or Chaz and Wilson's or Park Avenue Country Club, these places that we all went and socialized, and they would come to me and say, hey, how's it going? Because they gained a comfort level. And so when it was time for new contracts or tension within the team, they came to me before I could even come to them sometimes. That must have been great. Now, you also you went to Atlanta, and mm -hmm. you were with the Journal Constitution for a very long time. You also worked for the Atlanta Black Star. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what was the Atlanta experience like just to round all this out? Yeah. Get to your I mean, current job? Sure. Coming to Atlanta to visit when when I covered the Knicks and even before the Knicks, I covered the New Jersey Nets for three years, way back when uh, Dave Wall, who was an assistant under Pat Riley, got the job and had Otis Birdsong and Buck Williams and Kelvin Ramsey and those guys, Mike Jaminski, and it was a really great training ground for me. But I had been coming to Atlanta a lot, understood it was a beautiful, great city, progressive city. And so after the Olympics, Don Boykin, who was the sports editor, I had reached out to him and visited with him right before the Olympics. He called maybe that Thursday, Olympics ended on Sunday. He called on Thursday saying he had create, created a job for me. I was like, whoa. And it was sort of a hybrid where I would cover some University of Georgia, University of Georgia Tech, Georgia Tech University, Hawks, Falcons, Braves. And it was an ideal scenario to come here. And it's been wonderful. 13 years at the AJC. I went to the Olympics in 2000 in Australia. We were there for three weeks. That was just a fantastic experience. I covered basketball, Greco-Roman wrestling, diving, road. Uh, water polo, track and field, and the most emotional event I've ever covered in my life was the track and field event in 2000 at the Olympics with Kathy Friedman, an Aboriginal, Aboriginal from Australia. Those are the people of color in Australia, was running the 400 race in the headline in the newspaper the day, that day said, the race of our lives. They put the whole continent on her shoulders and I covered that race and she ran uh, the first half of that race slowly and she came around that turn and came back and won that race and the emotion in the building. I, I mean, literally, I was standing with my sports editor, Don Boykin. He and I both had tears running down our faces. It was just such an emotional 
experience that eclipses seeing Michael Jordan win his sixth championship, which I did see and was there in Utah. It was the best event I've ever covered. So those are the kind of experiences I had at the AGC. I saw Mike Tyson bite off Evander Holyfield's ear in Vegas. I covered that fight. I covered the the Falcons in Minnesota winning the NFC Championship and going to the Super Bowl, which was the, the team's first opportunity. So it was just uh, great that I had various opportunities. I covered University of Georgia basketball team with Tubby Smith and watched him build that program. Excuse me, Super Bowls, college bowl games, of course, NBA finals. So it allowed me to expand what I was, what I had been doing in New York on a broader scale. Really, is amazing. Seventeen NBA Finals, four World Series, four Super Bowls. You mentioned the Olympics being the most amazing thing that you covered. Why aren't as we transition to talking about your current job? Why aren't you still in sports? <laughs> well, I took the buyout. Obviously, the industry changed. The internet came, and it, the internet is amazing, and it's also has been detrimental to newspapers. We've seen papers close quite a bit. We saw the LA Times this week, two days ago, yesterday, lay off 115 or more people. We've seen it uh, across the board. We don't see Sunday editions as thick anymore. I could see it in that it was a shifting landscape around 2006, 2007, and 2008. The opportunity came to take the buyout. By then, I had started writing novels and started doing my literary conference. And I even I had a job offered to teach at Morehouse College as an adjunct, journalism, sports reporting. And I turned it down. And then, I don't know, three weeks later, I found that I was eligible to take the buyout. I just didn't like the landscape of what the where the business had gone. I had a meeting with an editor one day and he said, well, you're going to have to write two breaking news stories a week. You're going to have to write an alternative story form. You have to write a feature. You have to do this. And I'm like, really? Well, what if there's no news to break? What do you, I don't cover a beat anymore. I, I was writing columns and doing general. So it, it became this whole notion that we've got to keep up with the times and, and instead of innovating. And I, I'll never forget I was sent to Newport News when Michael Vick got drafted by the Falcons. I was there for a week to write a story about Michael Vick. Near the end of that week, the photographer came to take pictures of Michael Vick's home or something. And I wrote this big story that was on the front page of the paper. And at the top across the banner, it said, to see pictures of Michael Vick's home and to read this story on our website, go to AJC.com. And so I said, wait a minute. So we don't see the pictures in the newspaper, but you're giving it for free on the internet. So why would they buy the paper? If they're going to get the story and pictures, they're going to get more for free. And the response was, well, it's a new world and we have to get people to go to this website. And I knew then this was, this was going to end badly. And it continued so we, to, yeah, it progressed, it, it progressed with different things, the mandates that I just said, when I was in a position, thankfully, to say I, I've done it, I can't do this anymore, and and I took the buyout then. So explain what you do for NBCBLK. Yeah, so it's been a, quite a minute since I've worked full time. I did take that job the same day that I took the buyout. The guy who wanted to hire me at Morehouse called back and said, "You know, I really think you could we can work it in." And I said, "Well, guess what? I'm free to do it now." So for four years, I taught at Morehouse. I continued to write novels. 
and the Atlanta Black Star came, opportunity came back. A great veteran journalist named Nick, journalist named Nick Childs brought me in with a guy named Nick, Neil Nelson, who started the, mag, the online project. And we founded the magazine, uh, the, the, the website, and did a lot of work toward that. And so from 2009 to three years ago, I was freelance writing sometimes, but writing books doing my literary conference, the National Book Club Conference, working for the Atlanta Black Star, working for, there was a time I was working for the Sporting News, writing about Atlanta stuff, just kind of doing a little bit of everything. And I also started freelancing maybe in 20, with NBC BLK, and 19 maybe, and then in 2020, it had, I just really appreciate the fact that it was an, a site that focuses strictly on Black people, Black culture, Black lives, and trying to not only highlight those um, in that area, but also to inform. And so I inquired about a full-time position. He said, well, one is coming up. And eventually, after a succession of interviews, I was hired full-time in 2021. So it's going on three years now. And the work I do is meaningful. It is powerful at times. It's always interesting. And I I like to say that covering the NBA and it's my sports writing career was the most fun I've had this these last three years or so. Right if NBC BLK has been the most rewarding work I've done. Yep, I can imagine it's an interesting transition. As I think about it in my career, I've worked in sports twenty-five years and I think mm -hmm. about doing something meaningful. And I want to talk about a couple of the stories that you've done. You recently did an overview on where we stand with reparations, focusing mm -hmm. specifically on California. What did you find and what was it like to write about that subject for you? Well, I found that there are a lot of people who are hurting, who are who are feeling the impact of slavery even today. I remember when somebody said, Kenya Barris, who created Blackish on ABC, you said everything is about goes back to slavery around Black people. And I, I thought it was a joke at first, but I think it's actually a lot of merit to it because when you look at the many years, the centuries of oppression and not ever really have an opportunity to get on equal footing, it does impact you. It can impact you. We, we know there are many people, myself included, who have been able to overcome and live a life that you don't feel it as much as others, but on the whole, the remnants of it exists and it's, and it's powerful. And so, shoot, I don't even remember the original question, how I even got to it. <laughs> well, what, what was it like to write about it, like to actually put pen oh, to yeah. you know, right. type it out? Reparations, yes, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm hearing those stories. I, I went to Sacramento twice during the hearings and listened to people walk up to the podium and talk to the reparations task force about how it has impacted their families, having land stolen, having people in prison for an extended amount of times beyond the norm. And, and I see people are hurting. I don't think after all of that reporting and all of, all of what I've seen, I've seen and read much of that 1100 page report that the California reparations task force or committee produced, I think it's going to be very difficult for people to receive financial reparations. I don't think there's a will for it. Certainly there's a will. Uh, studies indicate Black people are 80% at it, in there, and then it, other races are far less 
for that. I think the program aspect where they may give vouchers for a college education, for housing areas, working in areas of public health, those things may come through. But I think a lot of people want to check, and I don't know that that's going to happen. I just simply don't see it. I know in Evanston, Illinois, much smaller place, some people have gotten checks for $25,000 that they can use toward purchasing a home. I think anything will help, certainly, but I don't think the, there's enough will there for the general population, from people outside of the Black population to to say, let's do this. And that's, I think that's very unfortunate. Yeah, there's a clear dividing line on that. Speaking of personal and speaking of people who are hurting, you wrote about violence at HBCUs and whether it was having a deterrent effect on families sending their children there. And I would imagine as an HBCU alum, that one got to you pretty hard. What was the experience of writing that one like? Yeah. Not only am I an HBCU alum, but my son went to North and graduated from Norfolk State as well. My daughter was going to go to Norfolk State if she hadn't gotten accepted to Berkeley College of Music in Boston. So we, you know, we're very connected to HBCUs and have a great love and understanding of all of them. That story was derived from sort of a a spree, so to speak, where at a few schools in over a course of a short amount of time, there was this violence on campus. Almost all, not almost all of it was occurring from people who did not go to the school, but from people in the neighboring communities coming on out of whatever reasons, jealousy, trying to rob or whatever it was, just out of anger. And so we posed the question because it was such a rash, maybe four instances. I know Morgan State was one and it ended up canceling his homecoming. Almost had one down at Edgar Waters, Edward Waters University in Jacksonville, where a guy was on campus but run off campus and then down a block away killed someone. Bowie State. There have been other cases where in over the years where violence has happened. But in the end, it's no more so than at PWIs because, I mean, they had at Michigan a mass murder go on campus and shoot people. But I wanted to just look at, because when you go to college, you're supposed to feel like you're comfortable. You're supposed to send your kids and the last thing you should worry about is, uh, you, uh, you know, are you safe once you get on those grounds? And so I wanted to talk to parents about how they were, were feeling. It was very interesting that almost all of the parents said, you know, I'm concerned, obviously, but the value proposition of what you get out of being at an HBCU is too is too valuable to pull them out on the on the notion that something could happen. Because reality is, in this country, something could happen anywhere. How do you come up with your story ideas? Based on conversations I had with people, based on what I observe, based on what I read, what we do at BLK is not only report the news, but we also report the news in a way that's a, a deeper dive and give it context and advance the story. And so one of the stories that I, that has been the most impactful story I've written is spending the night on a plantation last October, October before last. And yeah, last, yeah. I think it was last year, yeah. Yeah. And you know, that story idea came from just doing research for a book I wrote, which you mentioned, Say Their Names, How Black Lives Came to Matter in America, a book in which we were, I and four other accomplished journalists were kind of looking at the pandemic 
and the social justice movement that was taking place at the same time, running concurrently in 2020, and trying to put it into historical context, looking at how we got to that moment. And in my research, I learned about the opportunity to spend the night on this plantation in Charleston, South Carolina. And, and so that was, you know, we don't do a lot of first person stuff at BLK, but when I posed the idea to my editors, Michelle Garcia and Joy Wang, they said, yes, I think this is a worth doing it in a self, as a self, as a self person, first person <laughs> piece. And so I went, my wife and I went, and it was quite the experience. There's nothing like actually walking in the spaces where your ancestors walk. It would, you know, it would be different. It, it would have been a different experience if it was someplace that wasn't, you know, the, the, where so such horrific acts took place, you know, so just driving up to the to the plantation to the house to the area was haunting and you wrote about it very vividly um, that you didn't just feel it you heard it like just explain that yeah i heard it i felt it and you know it's a whole process you go there and you you sit by by a campfire with other people and talk about race and where we are in this country and i thought that was very interesting and a good way to to do it versus just coming in and going to the cabins and there were five cabins and we chose ours and it was I guess we went in naive we didn't come in with with pillow pillows or I mean we thought it was going to be like a hotel like they had sanitizer well it wasn't that sanitized they did put a floor there it was a linoleum floor but we were told it was pretty much a ground dirt floor back then and you know, we sat there and you can't help but think about the family that was there and what they were going through. And, you know, they not too far from there is where they had the the the, the trading this the trading block where they were putting people up on a stage and people were bidding for them after they got off the boat in Charleston and now they're there. And what is that like? Uh, you know, the fear, the inexplicable b- behavior from the people who quote unquote owned them that they had to deal with. And so it was sort of like, wow. And then I finally dozed off to sleep when we were sitting, sleeping in these folding chairs and around 4 a.m. my wife touched, said, do you hear that? And I, behind us was a cemetery and I woke up and there was, it was no, I mean, it, it was distinctly a woman screaming off in the distance for about 10 seconds. And we just listened in silence and it wasn't scary. I never felt like I was threatened, but it was very eerie. And it became more eerie when a few hours later, when we when the sun came up and we stepped outside to leave, and we ran and we encountered some other people who had sat outside all night. They sat by the fire. They couldn't stand it being in the cabin. These were white women. And my wife asked them, "Did you hear that screaming around four a.m.?" They're like. We've been up here all night. We didn't hear anything. And we looked at each other. It was like, wow. And I ended the story saying, maybe it wasn't, it was only meant for us to hear. Yeah, but it was it, very powerful ending. Yeah, thank you. It was it was quite an experience. All my friends who read the story were like, look, thank you for taking one for the team. I'm not doing that. 
A couple other things just to round mm -hmm. this out. What are the different things that you're continuously tracking for the beat? I'm continuously tracking reparations. Right now, I'm continually tracking also this campaign to abolish diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, it is a almost sinister campaign. And it's just like the whole campaign of taking out books in classrooms or sanitizing or whitewashing or completely eliminating the teaching of African-American history in schools. Uh, I don't know how all of a sudden in these last few years that is uh, a bad thing. It, it just, it behooves us to know you know, to know our history. And it hasn't made any, I've never heard of anybody saying it makes me feel bad or, or makes me feel guilty that my ancestors did this. I've never heard that before, but this is one of the arguments. And so we're continually tracking that, but we're also concerned about, you know, the black vote with the campaign coming up, not the campaign in, in full effect, but the election coming up in November, pivotal election for us, I think, when you look at the differences in people between who the inevitable uh, Republican candidate Trump and the incumbent president Biden pivotal election and the and the consensus is that the black vote will be decisive. So when you hear there's concerns about voting for the president, it's alarming because that means you're either not going to vote or you're going to vote for the other side and the other side has shown himself to be, and and I, look, I don't know how people can say, I don't care, I just, I like policies, I don't care about policies, but when you have displayed yourself to be less than a, an honorable person on several fronts, I don't see how you can dismiss that. And, you know, we're not taking the side, but we are monitoring the fact that if Black people say they're not going to vote for Biden, why aren't you going to vote for him? And we're reporting about that. So those are some ongoing stories that I'm I'm always monitoring and we'll be writing about more than once between now and the next year. We haven't talked about uh, this at all, but why novels? Well, when I was growing up in D.C., my family got us rock'em, sock'em robots, roller skates, footballs, pajamas, all that stuff for Christmas. But my parents also got us books and I read them and I became an avid reader not really understanding what an avid reader was. It was just a natural thing for me to do. And so in 92, I was reading Waiting to Excel by Terry McMillan on the beach in um, Maui on vacation. And I was enjoying it. I was like, I can do this. I can do, I can write a story about, about relationships just from a male's point of view. And then I sat at my computer and at that empty screen and I said, nope, maybe I can't. But I thought about it. <laughs> For seven years, for seven years, I had a story in my head that I was continually growing in my head. And finally, I sat down and started writing my first novel, which was called Baggage Check. And it it turned me on to a whole nother passion about writing. The differences between writing novels and writing, you know, and writing as a journalist is that I can make everything up. Everything in journalism, I need quotes. I need people to have done something and and other people to tell me how how it happened. Here as a fiction writer, I could just make it all up. And so it opened up my imagination in a way that I didn't know uh, existed, but it wouldn't be what it has been if I didn't have that journalism background. Because I can have all the ideas in the world, but if I don't have the skill set, 
and the understanding the grasp of knowledge and in, in the English language and how and in punctuation and the re, you know the research research required to build out a character in a storyline, then it would have been a lot more difficult. What are the general themes of these? Because you got a, a pretty wide, pretty wide variety of them, large yeah. number of them. What are the theme? What are the themes that you cover? You know, I start out talking and doing most of the first three or four were about specifically about relationships, male female relationships, because females are the most avid readers of fiction, and they are always looking to learn what is going on in a man's mind. Why are you not doing what I want you to do? You know, those kind of you know. I want a relationship, but I want to understand a man. And so I was giving them insight into the mind of a man that may help them, but if nothing else, entertain them. I later expanded into life, just life in general. So I have a book called Welcome to My World about a homeless guy who encounters a depressed woman and they form this unique friendship where they help build each other up. Um, no romance in the book, very little, but it's really just about two people who never ordinarily meet actually coming together and building each other up. And I, I wrote another story called Seize the Day about inspired by two ladies I knew who ended up dying from cancer, but I was around them when they knew their inevitable fate. But I, I saw them comport themselves in a manner which I don't know that I could. They acted as if they were okay, knowing that they're, you know, what was going to come in the next several months. And I wanted to address that. So I wrote a story called Seize the Day about a guy who learns he's terminally ill, who had a pretty mundane life. And once he gets his diagnosis, after a week or two, of it takes to get himself off the floor and try to take steps toward living because he had, he was still here. Uh, he ends up, you know, having telling this uplifting story about life and the, and the importance of actually living each day like it's your last. So it was, it's not, a, again, it's not a romantic book like the others were. So I've evolved to, to telling stories that kind of really matter to people. And I think we all can relate to cancer and we can all relate to our own vulnerability when it comes to life and death. What, explain what your book conference is. So when I wrote my first book, Baggage Check, that I mentioned, I started meeting with book clubs and I had these amazing experiences talking to women about the stories you know, picking my brain about why this happened. Why did you, how did you do come up with these ideas? And I'm getting this feedback from them that fuels me for the next work. I thought it was just an uh, extraordinary experience, the fellowship, the coming together of reader and author. And I wanted to do something where I could bring in readers and authors and have a succession of book club meetings because the reality was at the time we were standing in line at Barnes & Noble to see Walter Mosley get maybe get a quick picture, get your book signed and move on. No conversation, no way to ask any questions. And so at the National Book Club Conference, we have a succession of panel discussions, book club meetings over two and a half days. And it is far better than I ever thought. The first one was 2003 and it was emotional and it's become sort of a spiritual kind of thing where, and now it's, where it's really like a, a festival slash family reunion because so many people who've been before come back and now readers are actually friends with authors that they admire and readers from New York, maybe see readers from Dallas and say, and they're now friends and they do things together and at least spend the weekend together. And so it's become this beautiful experience where that we call literary bliss, where readers experiences 
reading experience or their experience is heightened by being able to meet these authors and talk to them. And authors are just inspired by being able to hear from readers and share their stories. Two more questions. One is, what are the other journalism issues that you're most passionate about at this time? You know, I'm, I'm concerned about artificial intelligence. This notion that someone can put in some keywords and a guy can tell the story uh, is, is disheartening. I'm concerned about it, but I, I, you know, I mentioned the Kathy Freeman story that I covered in, in 20, in 2008 Olympics and Michael Jordan last shot in, in Salt Lake city in 94, I think it was 95, 96. I can't remember, but whatever his last championship was artificial intelligence can tell you what happened, but it can't tell you what it felt like because it's not human. It can't tell you, you know, it, you, it can't get goosebumps and it can't, monitor how people feel around the feeling that you get there and the noise level and all of those things that really take a story to another level. So while, you know, it, it it's here to stay, it's not going anywhere. That part of it, it, you know, it can't be replicated. You, you can't replace real life people with emotions who can detect those emotions and express them, you know, in the written word. So I, I, I do feel like though, that, that people are going to, they're going to continue to work on it to try to make it so make it, you know, obsolete that people show up and cover these games. It's the next, it's an issue that the next generation of journalists is certainly going to have to deal with. We close with this question, uh, which we ask everyone at the end. The show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work, and we ask that you do the same. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work? Well, I'm going to salute the National Association of Black Journalists. When I came into college is when I first heard about it. And I went to my first convention in 1984. And the commitment of that organization has been steadfast all those years. And it existed before I my first conference. So I went to one, I hadn't gone in a while. I went to Birmingham last August and you know, it's it, it's empowering to see so many journalists so committed to the work in an organization that stands up and wants to address the the concerns that exist in this industry, but won't give up even if progress is slow. Our next episode after you will be with the uh, vice president at the NABJ, so I'm looking forward to that. Awesome. I very much look forward to this one, Curtis Bunn, a longtime writer former New York tabloid sports writer where I got to read him frequently and now currently writer at NBC BLK. Thank you for joining me. Mark, it was great. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.